We are going through, uh, a little early, admittedly, uh, summer psalms. Uh, we just finished a couple of weeks ago uh, a, a long uh, examination of the Gospel of John. And so uh, before uh, I head off on to sabbatical, which is not for a few more weeks, I know some people have, have asked, are you preaching again, or is this your last Sunday, and I'll be here for a few more weeks. Um, but, uh, but we are looking at various psalms as we do uh, once we uh, hit summer. And so uh, last week we saw Psalm 24, and this week we are going to be looking at Psalm 142. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, as always, I'd encourage you to follow along. We're going to be looking at specific words and phrases. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along in that way, if you look in the row in front of you underneath, you'll, you'll find a, a Bible there. And, uh, and if you use that Bible, you'll find our passage on page 523. Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, those of you who know the Psalms, even relatively well, know that David wrote the bulk of them. But for most of his Psalms, in fact, for most of the Psalms, uh, we don't know the historical context in which the Psalm was written. But fortunately for us, we know the context uh, of, of, of when and what was going on in David's life when he wrote the psalm. You see it here, uh, if you just look in your Bible, uh, right next to 142, you see that this is a masculine of David. We don't exactly know what that means. It, it was a term uh, probably describing the liturgical or, or, or some kind of form that, that this psalm eventually was used in, uh, in, the, in a worship service. So that we don't know, but we do see a masculine of David when he was in the cave. So we know where David was, and we know what was going on in his life when he wrote the psalm. So for a little background, uh, most of you probably know about King David. Most of you probably know at least the story of David and Goliath. But to reflect a little bit on what was going on in David's life. David, of course, uh, had been anointed by God as a boy to be the next king of Israel. The problem was that the current king, Saul, was still there. 
he was still in office. And, and Saul essentially forgot who the true king of Israel really was. Saul began to think that he was the king, not the Lord. And Saul began to act, frankly, jealously. He began to do things his own way and turn away from the Lord. And so, and so God said, look, I, I am going to choose a man after my own heart. And God chose David, the youngest son of Jesse. When he chose David and anointed him to be king, he was only a shepherd boy. But David quickly grew in the ranks. He quickly became uh, perhaps the greatest citizen in all of Israel. He was the one who was known as Saul's greatest warrior. He took on Goliath when no one else would. He trusted in the Lord when Saul fell apart. And soon Saul's, rather than being thankful for someone like David, became incredi incredibly jealous of David. So jealous, in fact, that Saul sought to kill David. And the first time we see this is when Saul, as David is sitting in his room, tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. Now just think about that for a moment. I mean, before we even get into the more extreme things that, that Saul ended up doing, imagine that one action. I mean, I have never in my life had someone try and fail to succeed only because I dodged it, try to kill me. And yet Saul threw a spear and tried to pin David to the wall. So David ran. Knowing that he was now fearing for his life, he, of course, ran to the first place he could think of. He ran home. He ran to his wife. His wife was Saul's daughter, given in marriage to David. And yet Saul didn't leave him alone. When David sought refuge there, Saul tracked him down. David had to escape, leave his wife, and run. David then sought refuge in the prophet Samuel. He sought refuge there, but in fact Saul chased him down. And David had to run from Samuel the prophet. David then sought refuge in the land of Nob. He ran to Ahimelech the priest. David was on the run. He was a, refu a refugee. He, he was fearing for his life. He was hungry. He was tired. He needed some way to defend himself. And so Ahimelech the priest gave him provisions, and he also gave him the sword of Goliath. David took those and left. He fled from Saul. And having nowhere else to turn... We know David must have been incredibly desperate because he ran into the territory of the enemy. The place David fled where he had, when he had nowhere else to go was Gath. And those of you who know your Bibles know that the city of Gath was not only a Philistine city, the Philistines being the arch enemies of David and those he had been fighting and killing, but Gath was the hometown of Goliath, the champion that David had killed. And so David, fleeing to Gath, knowing nowhere else he could go without uh, having Saul capture him, uh, feared for his life from the Philistines. And Scripture tells us that he actually had to act insane and let his spit dribble down his beard uh, for the king of Gath to send him away as a madman. Where do you go when you have nowhere else to go? Where do you go? 
Where was David going to go? He couldn't even be in Gath and be safe. Well, we know where David went. He fled to a remote cave in Adullam, this rocky, desolate area halfway between Gath and Bethlehem. And it was there in a dark, dank cave with David all alone, no one to turn to, that he wrote this psalm, Psalm 142. The first thing I want us to see as we look at verses 1 and 2, where we see David's plea, I want us to notice, first of all, that despite all appearances, despite the fact that that readers at this point, those reading this account, uh, see that, that David is, by all appearances, all alone, he is not utterly alone. Yes, David has no family with him. He has no friends with him. He doesn't have Jonathan, his closest friend. His wife is not with him. But notice, he does have his Lord. God has made us for human companionship. If you know your Bibles, you know that the first malediction, a benediction is a good word, the first malediction that we read in the Bible, the first thing that God says is not good is that man is alone. And so he made a helper for him. It's, you know, there's a reason why people are put in solitary confinement for ultimate punishment. Of course, David being alone is not good. He has no human companionship. He's by himself, fearing for his life. But, you know, there's a universe of difference between between being humanly alone and being utterly alone. And David is not alone. David knows this. In fact, he's already uh, written about this. He recites this over and over again throughout the Psalms, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. David knows that the Lord is with him. And notice he cries out to him. And notice what he calls out to, who he calls out to. He, he calls out to the Lord. Now, if you look in uh, our text here, Lord is in all capitals. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. David isn't crying out to some higher power, which is really only just his own thoughts. He's not crying out to a force that he hopes exists somewhere. He is calling out to the covenant God of Israel, the one he knows exists and who has in fact called him to be the future king. David is is able to call out to him because he has led him there. David's with the Lord because the Lord, who is sovereign over his life, has brought him to this place. Think about it. Why else is David there? What brought him here? You know, sometimes we find ourselves in trouble. Sometimes we find ourselves in our own cave, if you will, and we can trace why we're there. We can look back on on the events of our lives. We can look back on decisions we made. We can look back perhaps on sinful things that we've done, and we see, just like the Bible says, that we are reaping what we have sown. We see that we are suffering because of things we've done, and we can kind of draw that straight line. I I did this, I shouldn't have done it, and now I'm suffering the consequences of it. David sees that later in his life. 
You read through, you'll see that David suffers greatly because of the sin that he commits with Bathsheba. It, in, in one sense, completely wrecks his entire life, what he does. But notice, not this time. David's in this cave all alone with no one, no human to talk to, and what can he trace it to? You know, sometimes, and perhaps most of the time, when we find ourselves in times of trial, we find ourselves in caves, if you will, uh, suffering greatly, we can't trace a line. We don't know why this is happening. And David hasn't done anything wrong. In, in fact, you could say that he's done everything right. David has served the Lord. He's, he's been a faithful servant of Saul. What, what has David done to make Saul want to kill him? Has he started a coup? Has he plotted against Saul or, or tried to kill Saul himself? No. He's been the most loyal subject in all the land of Israel and Saul's entire kingdom. So why is David there? Well, for two reasons, at least. Maybe the only two. Saul's sin and God's sovereignty. It was Saul's sinful pride and jealousy on the one hand and God's sovereign plan for David's life on the other that has brought David to this place. God had a plan for David's life. He's already anointed him to be king one day. But until that day arrives, God has called David to go through times of trial. And this cave is one of them. David is all alone and yet not alone. For his heavenly father was there with him. The Lord who led him there was with him there. Christian, that's important for us to remember. Because some of you are sitting here today feeling all alone. Some of you are watching today uh, the live stream, you feel all alone. Humanly speaking, maybe you are all alone. Maybe you feel as though you have no family and no friends, no one in your life who truly cares for you. But if you are in Christ, you are not utterly alone. The Lord is with you. In fact, the Lord has led you where you are. The Lord has led you to this trial, is with you in the trial. Notice that this is no routine prayer. David, I'm sure, had routine prayers. All you need to do is read through the Psalms to see that David prays often about many things. And it's good that we, as believers, have routine prayers. It's, it's good that we thank God when we arise in the morning. It's good that we thank God before we eat our meals. It's, it's good that we thank God when we tuck our children into bed and, and pray that the Lord would bring them to himself. And there are all kinds of things that, that we ought to be in the habit of praying every day. And they're probably not going to change much. But what we see here is that David's not really praying a routine prayer. I mean, look at the prayer. He's, he's crying out. He's pleading. He's pouring out. David is, is not quietly pondering the situation. He's not quietly praying to himself in his heart. He's screaming in this cave. He's emphasizing, I'm crying out with my voice. With my voice, I'm saying these things in this cave. You know, 
it's good to have the routine prayers, but God oftentimes breaks us out of our routine prayers by breaking us out of our routine lives. David is now in a situation that probably six months earlier he could never imagine he's in. And he's praying out loud. Can I suggest, Christian, that this is just a suggestion, it's not a command from Scripture, but that you find some time each week, maybe even find some time each day where you can be alone and not feel any kind of self-consciousness to pray out loud to the Lord. That you speak, that you use your voice. If you've been a Christian long enough, you know that how, how, how hard it is to pray. You know how often you begin to pray, and if you're praying silently, your mind can drift. And you can start thinking about something way over here when you began over here, and it has nothing to do with your prayer. And you think, how did that happen? Lord, forgive me for so easily drifting away from this prayer. I have found in my own life that by taking these walks around the neighborhood by myself and speaking out loud to the Lord, it, it's very hard to get me off track. I'm vocalizing what I'm thinking, and I'm able to stay with what I'm thinking. But David is vocalizing, and the point is that if he had not been driven to that cave on that day because of those circumstances, we wouldn't be reading this prayer. This prayer is coming out of that circumstance. And notice <coughs> that in all of his pleading, David knows that he's done nothing wrong, humanly speaking, but notice that in all of his pleading, in all of his crying, in all of his wondering, he hasn't forgotten that he's a sinner saved by grace. That's in there. He says, with my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Humanly speaking, again, David's done nothing wrong. He's done everything right. This is a product simply of Saul's sin. He's been treated unjustly. All of that is true. But David knows, and we all know, if we know the Bible well enough, that he was a sinner from conception. David knows that when he compares himself to the ultimate standard, when he compares himself vertically to God's law, he knows that he has never lived up. And so therefore he's not crying out for justice from God, he's crying out for mercy. Lord, I, I'm pleading with you for mercy. He says, when my spirit faints within me, David is at his, you know, the end of his emotional rope. You know my way. In the path where I walk, that they've hidden a trap for me, Lord, I know it. I look to the right and see, and there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. David, notice, he says, I look to my right and I don't see anyone. Of course, David could look anywhere he wants and not see anyone. I mean, he's in a cave by himself. But he's specifically pointing out his right because on the right is where your right-hand man would normally be. No doubt David's right-hand man is Jonathan, his best friend, Saul's son, but he's had to run from Jonathan as well. And he looks to his right, and he doesn't have that person there. He has no right-hand man, no one who has his back, no one who's helping him to escape from Saul. He looks to where his right-hand man should be, and he sees no one. Now, David, again, is all alone, but look at how he describes his loneliness or his isolation. 
He's not describing it simply by describing an absence of people, like there are no human bodies around me. He describes it as no one takes notice of me. No one cares for my soul. The Hebrew words mean that no one's investigating me. Why isn't anyone here? Why is no one taking notice or acknowledging that I'm, that I'm gone? Why, why does no one care for what I'm dealing with? He's falling apart emotionally, but what upsets him the most isn't strictly that there are no humans present, but that there are no human beings present who seem to care what he's going through. I mean, isn't that generally what we're so upset about when we feel lonely? I mean, if all we need are bodies around us, if if the only thing we're really upset about is that no one is physically present, I mean, you can just simply go and sit in the DMV all day, and you'll be surrounded by lots of people, you know, but every single person, even if it's packed, is going to be concentrating on their own issue, on what's going on in their life, or what they need, or their license renewal, or whatever. You can be surrounded by people, but if the people that surround you take no interest in you, then you may as well be by yourself. I mean, in one sense, you know, if you, look, if you read books today, you see that there's just this epidemic of loneliness. In, in one sense, we have more friends than we've ever had. I mean, when I was on Facebook for a brief period of time, a long time ago, I gathered around me tons of friends. I had hundreds of, I, I think it was close to a thousand. Friends all over the world, friends all over this country, friends back in Maryland where I'm from, I had friends adding to my queue on a daily basis. And yet, I don't think any one of them knew what I was going through. Or probably didn't really care too much either. No one cared to investigate or recognize or acknowledge what was going on in my life. Alexander McLaren writes, We have companions in joy. Sorrow we have to face by ourselves. Ella Wheeler Wilcox, a poet, says, laugh and the world laughs with you, weep and you weep alone. Isn't that so true often? Friends, that's why the church ought to be different. The church is where, Scripture says, we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. How can we possibly do that if we're not in each other's lives? If we're not at some point taking care, uh, doing what David is, 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 is saying isn't happening to him, if, if we're not being, uh, you know, not only investigating one another's lives, but, but when we're asked how, uh, when, when we ask someone how things are going, or if we're asked how things are going, if we're not transparent at some level and truthful at some level, how in the world can this even be possible? And yet God brought us together so that we could be this way. I was grateful this morning that when I asked one of you how things were going, uh, you actually were honest. You said, honestly, just okay. You know, I'm so used to not hearing that. Usually, great, how are you? You know, and, and, and I got an honest reply. And so I said, text me later today and we'll get together. 
so we can talk about it. Notice that David, though, acknowledges that though he has no one else who cares, no one humanly speaking who seems to care, the Lord cares. He says that the Lord knows what lies ahead even if he doesn't. He said, Lord, you know my way though. You know me intimately. David knows the end, if you will. David knows, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that he will be king one day because he's already been anointed to be king. And he trusts that God is going to sovereignly bring him there someday. But in the moment, he doesn't know what lies around the corner. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes or what's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't know when that day will arrive. And that's how it is for us, Christian. We see, Scripture says, in a glass darkly right now. We see through a glass. We we live by faith and not by sight. We, We know our end. We know how our lives ultimately will end. We know how the world ultimately will end that Christ will return, that he will do away with all sin, that one day we will live with him on the new heavens and the new earth. But we don't know how our lives will go moment by moment. So when we read this, it's important to understand that we are like David. We know who does know how our lives will go moment by moment. And we can entrust our lives to him. David says, look, humanly speaking, no refuge remains to me. A refuge, of course, David uses that phrase over and over throughout the Psalms. A refuge just means a place of safety or a place of escape. And of course, I think on the one hand, David is speaking literally. He, I mean, this is it, right? I mean, he's, he's tried everywhere else. He's now in a cave, and if Saul finds him in this cave, he's, he's probably finished. There's nowhere else he can go. And so, literally, he has no refuge. But you see, figuratively speaking, he also has no one to go to for a place of refuge. Which is why it's so important in verses 5 and 6 that he acknowledges that though he has no human refuge, the Lord is his refuge. Notice how up and down this prayer is. David seems to be on a seesaw emotionally. He's on the one hand crying out and despairing. He doesn't have anyone. He doesn't know where to turn. And yet then he speaks confidently of who the Lord is and of what he has in the Lord and of how the Lord knows his way. And it seems to just constantly almost be this this roller coaster of emotion. And that's the way it is. I mean, I appreciate Psalms like this because I know that as a Christian, my life, in fact, even in a single prayer, I can flip-flop between confidence in God and feeling overwhelmed by despair or sadness. Notice, though, that David says two things about the Lord. He speaks to the Lord. He says, you are my refuge. And when you think about it, if the Lord is his refuge for real, then David has nothing to fear. Because the Lord can easily keep Saul at bay. David can hide in that cave for five years and have Saul running all around the cave and not know where he is, if that's God's choice. David says, you are my refuge. You are the most trustworthy, the most powerful, the most safe person that I can turn to. And he says, Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. 
In the land of the living, of course, just simply means God is his portion now. God will be his portion one day when he gets to glory. But even now, Lord, even though I am in this cave, even though I have nothing else, humanly speaking, I know you are my portion. What does it mean that God is his portion? Well, if you remember, the, the land was divvied up among all the tribes of Israel. And land, or a portion of the land, was given to each of the tribes except the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi, the priesthood, got no land, and so the Levitical priests would say, God is my portion. I, I solely rely on the Lord. He is my portion. But one Old Testament scholar says this, what was originally the claim just of the tribe of Levi that I have no portion of land, but God is my portion, that phrase, God is my portion, ultimately became sort of the cry of all the tribes. Because even though, he says, they had land, they understood that behind that land stood the God who had given them the land. Ultimately, they understood God was their life support system and that they depended on God via their dependence on the land. The land became transparent. You see, the land became transparent, and through the land, they could see with the eyes of faith the divine ground on which they stood and thrived. That's important. It's important that we get in the habit of doing the same thing. It's important that we get in the habit every day of seeing every blessing in our lives transparently, if you will, of looking at everything that we have right now and seeing through that, in a sense, to the God who has provided it. Because if we don't get in the habit of doing that, then when God takes away these things that we have, we will think that we have nothing. If we get in the habit of seeing God as our provider now, as David did, then when we lose everything, if God so chooses, we will not forget that God is our provision then. I mean, I think that's why David is able to express these truths when he expresses them. He's able to express these truths so confidently. Because if you just read through the Psalms, you see that David is pondering the Lord and writing truths about the Lord and expressing truths about the Lord in all kinds of times. I think oftentimes we need some jolt in our lives to really express truths about the Lord, to really begin to dig into Scripture and see who is this God that I claim to believe in. David seemed to just have it at his fingertips all the time, expressing truths about the Lord. And so David was able, I believe, to express it so confidently in the midst of this trial because he's rehearsed these truths in times of calm. I think we would be wise to do the same thing, to memorize and meditate on and rehearse in our minds the truths about God in the times of calm so that when trials come, we have them at our fingertips. One of the things you can do, not only for yourselves, but also for your children, if you have them, is memorize the catechisms. Look to the catechisms for these great truths. We rehearsed one today 
in our statement of faith. How amazing is that statement, that Heidelberg Catechism question one? If you can just memorize that one question and answer, that could, do you know how many times you could go to that when you are facing trials? Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And He makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. How much is packed into that one phrase? It's amazing how much is packed into that. And David understood these truths. And so see that David, despite where he is, despite the situation he's in, he ends this psalm with confidence. Verse 7. Bring me out of prison. That's how he's describing this cave, prison. A place that he can't escape on his own. He's going to need help to escape this place. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Notice one thing here. First, look at the reason that he wants to be set free. How amazing is that statement? Here David has been wronged. He's, he's had to flee for his life because of sin and jealousy. And David says, Lord, please set me free. Why? Does he say, Lord, set me free, bring me out of prison, that I may take revenge on my enemies? Does he say, well, bring me out of prison, Lord, that I may run far away and never be seen again? No, he says, Lord, bring me out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. Obviously, David wants peace and, and friendship and stability, but notice that he hasn't lost sight of life's ultimate purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Secondly, look at the future that David anticipates. David can foresee a time when the righteous will surround him. Right now, I mean, physically speaking, he has no one surrounding him, but even if he were to envision who's outside of these caves, who's seeking for him? It's not friends. He's got enemies seeking for him. And yet he can, though he doesn't know the immediate future, again, he can see, he can foresee a future where he is surrounded by the righteous. He knows, again, that he's destined to be the king of Israel. And he knows, therefore, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the Lord is going to deal bountifully with him. He knows that this cave is not his permanent residence. And Christian, the same is true for you. Whatever situation you're in now is not your permanent residence. Even if you're living your best life now, you don't have to be in, in a cave right now. You could be kind of, kind of doing well. 
doesn't matter. This world, this sinful, broken-down world, full of sorrows, is not your permanent residence. In Christ, one day, you will be destined to be with your Lord, surrounded by the righteous for all eternity. Well, that brings us to the end of the psalm, but I want us to notice a couple of things. I want us to notice something that I think is important, and that this is this psalm here, Psalm 142. It represents both a very dark time in David's life, but it, I think it also represents the turning point in David's life. So it's a great turning point in David's life. This prayer, this prayer of anguish, this prayer in the darkness and in isolation is a turning point because though David could not see it at the time, God answered David's prayer greatly and in ways that he probably at that moment couldn't see. And he answered them quickly. If you go back to our scripture text from earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 22, we see this progression. David, there's one sentence of David in this cave says, David ran away, he departed, he fled for his life, and he escaped to the cave of Adalam. One sentence. David writes this psalm, and what happens? And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. David wasn't alone permanently. In fact... This is even kind of comical in a sense. In fact, God brought to him a whole flood of people. It said everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. David was saying, hey, I'm all alone. Bring people, Lord. And God brought him people that were probably more needy than he was, that he now had the opportunity to minister to. And this band that God brought to him became the fledgling acorn of his kingdom. He became commander over them. And he ended up having 400 men who served and fought with him. This prayer was the turning point. From the time of this prayer and after, David was never again alone. David wasn't crowned king at that very moment, but look at how God abundantly answered his prayer. Christian, I hope that's an encouragement to you. You never know what prayer could be the turning point in your life. Sometimes I think we pray, and we pray once, and we don't see anything, and we stop. Or we pray a few times, or we pray for a week, or we pray for a month. Christian, continue to pray. Continue to pray. When you are in a cave, and even if you're not in a cave, you go to God. Go to God with your trials and your circumstances and your issues. Think about this. It's great to go to other people. It's great to go to people, and we should be there for one another. But every human being that you turn to has their own issues. Everyone that you could potentially turn to is dealing with their own 
caves, their own trials, their own struggles. God is the only one who has no issues. He's the only one who isn't preoccupied with his own problems. He's the only person in the universe who is perfectly sane all the time. He's the only one who is perfectly in bliss all the time. He is the only one who has all of his attributes perfectly at all times. He is never dealing with fear. He's never dealing with debt or bitterness or anxiety or trials or trouble or hardship. He's never dealing with any of that. And he tells you to bring your issues to him. He wants you to because he can handle them and because he's there. Well, in conclusion, I want us to see that David's cave here was really a shadow of Jesus' cross. In many ways, it foreshadowed Christ's cross. Think about it. Why was Jesus on the cross? He hadn't done anything wrong. It wasn't because he had done anything wrong. In fact, you could say that he had done everything right. He hadn't committed a crime. He hadn't tried to usurp God's kingdom or start a coup. There had been no treason. In fact, Jesus was the most loyal subject of God's kingdom this world has ever seen. When everyone else had withered under the weight of sin, Jesus was a man after God's own heart to the end. So why was Jesus on the cross? Well, Really, only two reasons, God's sovereignty and our sin. He wasn't there for anything he had done. It was our sinful pride and jealousy, first in the garden and then in each one of our own hearts on the one hand, and it was God's sovereign plan of redemption on the other. That's it. Why was he there facing judgment? on the cross. He was there facing judgment and given judgment so that David could plea for mercy from the cave. He faced justice so that you and I, Christian, could receive God's mercy. See, there is a universe of difference between being humanly alone and being utterly alone. On the cross, Jesus was utterly alone. Though David could look to his God and say, I know you are with me, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who did not forsake David in the cave yet forsook his only begotten on the cross so that you and I, Christian, will never, ever be forsaken by him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this song. We're thankful for your servant, David. We're thankful, Lord, that even in the midst of this great trial, he could turn confidently to you because you were working in his heart. Father, thank you for giving us this psalm that, that though we go through trials, though we Uh, face our own caves and sorrows and loneliness, Lord, we know that you are with us. Father, thank you for Jesus who faced that 
those hours on the cross, plunged into darkness and wrath so that we would be with you for all eternity. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.